This is the Great Adaptations Podcast from the Glacier Trust. Hello, I'm Morgan Phillips, UK co-director of the Glacier Trust and your host for the Great Adaptations Podcast. Glacier Trust enables climate change adaptation in the remote mountain villages of Nepal. To do this, we work with fantastic NGO partners on projects that prevent landslides, secure water supplies, tackle insect pest infestations, and support farmers to transition to forms of agriculture that are not only more resilient to the growing impacts of climate change, but also part of a wider process of societal transformation that aims to strengthen democracy, improve health and education, and fight for racial, gender, and economic equality. Our project work follows strong ecological and social justice principles, and doesn't separate adaptation off from the pressing need to regenerate nature, mitigate climate change, and transition the world away from an economic system that is failing Nepal and failing the world. In 2020, locked down and unable to visit Nepal, I wrote a short book called Great Adaptations in the Shadow of a Climate Crisis. It was published in September 2021 by Arcbound and is available to buy via the Glacier Trust website, but you can also find it on all the good bookselling websites. This podcast series accompanies the book and features interviews with scientists, politicians, academics and campaigners. The aim of the book, the podcast and the wider Great Adaptations project is simple. We want to get more people talking and thinking about adaptation. Adaptation is already happening and we can only expect to see more of it and more of its evil twin, maladaptation. We want to shine a light on the great and not so great adaptations so that when people start designing and implementing their adaptation strategies, they look to adapt in ways that are socially just, compatible with mitigation efforts and part of a wider transformative process. The adaptations to climate change that are already happening need to be scrutinised and celebrated in equal measure. Great Adaptations does that, but conversations about adaptation can't exist in a vacuum. Context is everything. Welcome to episode three of the Great Adaptations podcast. This is a slightly different episode to our usual episodes in that it doesn't feature an interview. This is a recording from an event held at Bristol Waterstones in November 2021 to launch the Great Adaptations book that this podcast series is accompanying to and its sibling book, Climate Adaptation. I've not mentioned the Climate Adaptation book yet on this podcast, so to introduce it briefly now, Climate Adaptation, Accounts of Resilience, Self-Sufficiency and Systems Change, to give it its full title, makes the case for a bottom-up, community-led process of revolutionary systems change to both combat climate change and adapt effectively to it. I'm one of 20 contributors to it who've been drawn from all over the world, and, they, and they're not the usual suspects. They're campaigners, academics and practitioners, and the accounts they give of what is being done and what could be done to adapt to climate change is so inspiring and really thought-provoking. Like Great Adaptations, Climate Adaptation is published by the Arcbound Foundation, and it was great to be involved in it. So what you're about to hear is my speech from the launch event for both books, that took place in Bristol on November the 9th, 2021. Artband organised the event and we had a really good turnout, maybe 50 people, some of whom might have been drawn there by the free beer on offer from our friends from the wife from Drew Brewery, who had just brewed a batch of Great Adaptations, the beer, which is a stout brewed with coffee and cardamom grown in eastern Nepal by farmers trained at the Dosa Agroforestry Resource Centre that was established by the Glacier Trust and our NGO partner Eco Himal in Solagumbu. The speech I gave was an introduction to the Great Adaptations book, so if you're thinking about reading it, this is hopefully a good introduction. There were a few questions at the end. I've amplified the sound for those bits to hopefully make them a bit more audible, but apologies that the sound quality isn't as good as it could be. I'll be back briefly at the end to tell you about the next episode, but for now, here's me talking live about Great Adaptations. Thanks so much for coming. It's um, really it's really quite overwhelming actually to do, a, to do an event in person. I've been so used to two years of sort of presenting into the void of, of Zoom and just not having any feedback at all from the audience. So if it's okay, I'd, I'd like you all to keep a really sort of still face. Uh, 
deadpan is what I need. That's what I'm used to. So, um, no, it's really great. And it's actually reminded me, I'm so glad um, that Wiper and True have come down. I want to thank you guys for, um, for the collaboration. It's brilliant to work with you. And I'll talk a little bit more about that collaboration later on. And Michael's going to be um, hanging around at the back to tell you a bit more about the beer. But it reminded me of when I was in first, I think I was in the first year of university when I went to university. And I went to this talk, um, this Guinness talk. This guy from Guinness came down. Um, probably organised by the business department to the, to the students' union, and invited us all down there on the, on the promise of a free pint. And I remember him doing the whole talk, and he had this pint of Guinness sort of there in front of him like this, and he's just wittering on about you know the origin stories of Guinness and what goes into it, and all the process and all this stuff. And everybody's just staring at this pint, going, "When am I going to get this free pint?" You know. <laughs> and you're there for hours. So I'm glad you've had your beer before, and if you want some more, go and get some. Don't wait until the end. Have some more beer. And I remember that at the end, he was like, he. he he finished up by downing the pints, putting it down. He goes, anybody got any questions? And this guy at the back was like, come on, I'm a free pint now. <laughs> so, um, no, it's brilliant. And cheers to everyone, and thanks for coming. Um, I'm not going to drink any more of that before I finish speaking. Um, I'd also like to thank, as well, everybody who supported um, our crowdfunder that we did for the Great Adaptations in the summer, and everybody who contributed um, to that. It enabled us to actually do this project, and and to print the book, so, so thank you to everyone who did that, and thank you to everyone at Place of Trust for supporting, and I want to give a shout out as well, even though they're not here, to um, Hannah Ahmed and Susie Harrison, who did all the design work on the book, so we really wanted to make it a really nice, tangible thing to have in your hand, and a nice thing to look at, so all the imagery and all the original artwork in it is thanks to those guys, so um, I want to say thanks to them, and of course a huge thanks to Artbound as well for taking this on, on top of this other book project, which has been fascinating, and those two stories are amazing and actually the rest of that book has so many amazing chapters in it about which kind of it starts off adaptation is quite a can be quite a sort of daunting subject area because it's kind of oh what are we going to do with this with this mess that we're getting into and like okay people are adapting and it can and it can it can be quite heavy but that what actually in that book it's it's not just the kind of adapting while the rest of the world's kind of goes goes up in flames it's actually talking about what 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 sorts of things are emerging around the world, what sorts of different types of community and different ways of living are emerging. So it's actually a really hopeful thing to read. So um, so do, yeah, do do get a copy of that if you haven't already. Um, I'm going to talk about um, three things. Well, I should first introduce the Glacier Trust. I've given everybody a, um, well, there's more people turned up than I expected, but there's, um, there's our newsletter, which is our most recent one. It's from the summer, but it's kind of our annual newsletter. Um, which give you a bit of a flavour of the sorts of stuff that the Glacier Trust does. But in brief, it's a um, climate change adaptation charity that works um, exclusively to enable adaptation projects in remote parts of Nepal. Um, and it's been going since 2008. It was set up by um, Robin Garten, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, but his family is still very much kind of involved with, with, with the charity. And it's, and it's great that some of them are here today, which is a, it's lovely to see you guys. Um, but we've been going since, yeah, since 2008, and I've been involved since... 2016, so five years now. Um, haven't been to Nepal obviously for for a good couple of years now, which is which is a real shame. But um, visited on a number of occasions, and it's it is, it's it's like a different world compared to compared to here. And although the the life there is very difficult, it's also in many ways it's it's kind of showing the way to what a world without fossil fuels might look like, and and the hope that it, that could exist, and and the lives there, although they're hard, and although they don't have all of the luxuries and trappings that we have here in, in the West, it's they still have wonderful, fulfilling lives. And so in some ways, it's kind of quite exciting to see what's what's possible, um, which is one of the things which I talk about in the book. So tonight, I just want to talk about, firstly, the, the kind of motivations for doing this Great Adaptations project. Um, Glacier Trust is a small charity, and you know most of my work is involves raising funds to, to get the projects to happen in Nepal. Um, but we want to talk about sort of why, why we came up with this Great Adaptations project, which is a book, but it's also... Um, a podcast as well, and we're also um, trying to do as much awareness raising as, as we can around adaptation as well. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about some stories of great adaptations that are happening in the world and some of the not-so-great adaptations that are happening in the world, which is kind of the meat of the first part of the book is going through some of these examples. Um, and then I'm going to also sort of confront the question of what happens if our glorious world leaders fail us at COP26 and temperatures go above two degrees of warming, which kind of looks fairly likely unfortunately um you know what happens then you know what's what's how can we adapt to a world that that's that's that that much climate change has happened in so i'm going to talk a bit about that and the, i guess the three kind of key sort of takeaways which hopefully you'll go away with and remember are that um adaptation is chronically underfunded there's 
nowhere near enough money going in, into it currently. Um, the adaptations that are happening, we're both not learning from the good ones and we're not scrutinising the bad ones. There's all sorts of adaptations happening and we're not actually sort of really taking that in enough. Um, and the third one is that adaptation needs to be part of a, of a transformative process. Like the, the society and economics of the world needs to be transformed, we need to move beyond fossil fuels, and we'll need to adapt to climate change while we're doing that, but, we, but those changes need to happen as well. Those systemic changes need to happen as well. Um, and then from that, I'm hoping you're going to draw kind of three conclusions, one being... I must buy this book and I must buy the climate adaptations book and I've got to buy one for all my friends and all my family and colleagues. It's Christmas coming up. It's a great gift. Um, and the beer to go with it as well. I mean, a book and a beer, what a great Christmas present. Um, I also kind of hope as well that um, you would um, be start to think about the adaptations that you're making to climate change at the moment. You're probably doing something without even really thinking about it or realising it already like every time a heat wave comes you'll do something to cope with that heat wave and that's an adaptation to climate change there's lots of little ways that we're adapting um, so thinking about your personal adaptation strategies your family's adaptation strategies if you work for a business or an organization how, how are they adapting what's what's going on there what's going to what's sort of 10 years down the line what do we need to be prepared for so starting to think about your own adaptation strategies as individuals as people as employees or employers um, but also in the community as well, sort of, you might be involved in a, in a sports club, you know, are the playing fields going to be underwater? And what, what's the adaptation strategy there? So there's all sorts of these things which need to be thought about. So, seeing as I've got an audience in front of me, instead of on Zoom, we can do a little bit of audience participation to begin with. Um, nothing too cringy. Um, I just wondered, apart from, I know some people have read one or both of these books already, um, so apart from that, those books, who, who here has read a book which is entirely about climate change adaptation before? Oh, we've got one person. That's good. And who's read um, like a PDF or a, a report or an academic paper about adaptation? I've got two, three. Okay, a few more. Who's read like an article in a newspaper about it? Okay, a few more. Who's read a tweet about it? He's read a WhatsApp message from me saying, come to our talk about adaptation. <laughs> yeah, OK. So, there's, so it's really, it's, you know, this, this audience obviously is fairly engaged in this topic. But even within this audience, there's, there's one person's read a whole book about adaptation. Congratulations. <laughs> it's probably more than I have, to be honest. I've, I've, I've written one. But um, we, um, one of the sort of motivations for the Great Adaptations Project was, was this issue, is that, that there aren't really accessible ways into the topic. It's... It's quite academic. It can be quite sort of um, hard, hard graft, even finding good books about this. And they can be really expensive as well because they tend to be academic books. So there's not really a kind of... When you think about all the climate change books there are, and there's many different types of them and many different lengths and different styles, there's loads of ways into climate change. But even within those books, I read quite a few of them last year sort of while researching this book, and, and even they don't really mention adaptation very often. Sometimes they're quite disparaging about adaptation as well. So, it's, so there's not very many easy ways into it. So one of our motivations um, in doing this as a climate change adaptation charity was like, well, we want more people to be engaged in this topic because we know it's important. Um, we can see the pressing need for people to adapt right now in Nepal, but all over the world, adaptation is needed, but we're struggling to get people engaged in it, even within the environmental movement. So a couple of years ago, we did, we did some research, we called it, um, we need to talk about adaptation, where we looked at Greenpeace, WWF, Friends of the Earth, um, RSPB and the Green Party, and we looked at about 2,000 articles that they'd written on their website, their blogs, and their news articles. And of those articles, of, of all of that, only 0.76% of all those articles were about adaptation. So it's hardly mentioned at all within, within the environmental charities, which is, there's many reasons why the environmental movement doesn't talk about adaptation, and some of those are ebbing away, and, and, the, and people are talking about it more and more. Um, but it's still, there's still this reluctance to talk about it and, and the audiences aren't getting engaged with it, which is actually quite surprising when you think, actually, the adaptation strategies people are choosing, they're not benign environmentally, they, they have environmental impact. So every time you turn an air conditioning unit on, if it's powered by fossil fuels, you're creating more climate change. So if that's your adaptation strategy, then we need to kind of green adaptation the same way that we need to green transport. And so there's, there's, a, there's a strong dis environmental case for talking about adaptation and helping people and acknowledging that people are doing it and that there are ecologically intelligent ways of doing it there's socially just ways of doing it 
and there aren't. There's, there's bad ways of doing it as well. And so there's, there's the kind of that case for it happening. So we wanted to get that and sort of raise that issue a little bit with people and um, try and get more people interested, try and get adaptation up the agenda a little bit more. And it, it has gone up the agenda. It's, it's more prominent at COP26 than previous COPs. It's definitely more on the agenda than it has been, although it's quite hard for me to tell that because of you know, the algorithms and being fed what I'm fed from, from, through my kind of social media bubble. But my, my sort of interpretation of just sort of watching BBC News and Newsnight and things like that, you can see that it's coming up more often than it used to. So, But we wanted to, to try and really engage more people in it and, and to write a book which is, yeah, like I say, has has nice pictures in it and has some artwork and is quite a nice thing to hold and have and to gift to people as a way to sort of get people just to read about it and to read a kind of like the quirky side of it as well because some of it's quite funny what's going on in the adaptation world some of it's really quite dark as well so it's, there's lots of lots of stuff of interest in there and that's kind of surprising that somebody hasn't sort of come along and written more about it already because there's there's so many different angles on it and so many ways to explore it um so since i joined Clancy Trust. I mean, I wasn't previously massively um, interested or knowledgeable about adaptation before I started doing this job. I worked um, in an environmental um, charity um, running Eco Schools Programme for England, and we would talk about climate change a lot, but we wouldn't actually talk um, about the adaptation side of it. It was always about how can we reduce the impacts of it. And actually, that, that work um, sort of, I was quite removed from well, miles removed from the impacts of climate change, and actually I wanted to get into work which is more dealing with the, with the actual consequences of it and the people who are suffering from it. So that's why um, working in Nepal has been really fantastic because you're actually you can see the impacts of climate change in first hand, and you can and you can help people to do what they need to do to kind of be able to cope with it while also trying to sort of reduce the impacts of climate change as well. So. Um, so it's quite new to me and sort of that's a reflection really of, you know, having been in the environmental movement and the environmental movement not talking about adaptation very much. Um, it wasn't coming across my radar hardly at all. Um, but since I started, I started sort of collecting all these different interesting stories that kept popping up. I mean, really kind of random blogs and sort of magazines from all around the world and started sort of saving those down and built up this collection. And the idea originally was just to have a collection of kind of short stories about adaptation and just have it there as a kind of intro to say, look, here's adaptation, just have, read some of these stories and think about it. That's, that's kind of the only, only aim of it, to sort of start the conversation going. And it's still very much, that's, that's the aim of it, is really, you know, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert at all in adaptation. It's, it's um, you know, I'm relatively new to it. I've not studied it in any sort of academic sense, but um, I think it's clear to me that there's, there's a, an interesting topic to look at. And so I wanted to really, hopefully this book is kind of to open that conversation and to get people talking about it and debating it, sort of the right the rights and wrongs of it and how to do it. Um, so the book, the sort of the first part of the book has has all these different sort of quirky stories in it about what's going on in, in the adaptation world. So I'll, I'll tell you a few of them um, just to get started. Um, I won't go through all of them in too much depth or read them out since like book readings are just, I don't know how anybody can cope with those. Um, so the first one I wanted to talk about is um, ski resorts. This is really fascinating to me. Like we know, obviously, that um, there's there's going to be less snow in all the sort of ski resorts around the world. One of the stats which I came across, which I couldn't quite believe, was how many ski resorts in Italy have closed due to the sort of lack of snow. Does anybody have a guess? In just in Italy, how many ski resorts have closed? This this was in 2011. This study was doing, done, so it's probably more now. Does anybody want to have a guess how many ski resorts in Italy have closed um, up oh. until 2011? What was that? 12. 12. Anybody want to go a bit higher? 50%. hundred. Oh, I don't know what percentage it is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I heard 100, but it's higher than that. It's 186. What? There you are, 50%. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's... Um, that's, and that's only up until 2011, so, so that's 10 years ago, so it's probably more than that. And that's just Italy, so there's obviously the Alps goes far, far, far beyond just Italy, so it must be, you know, close to 500 just in the Alps have probably closed because of, because of that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's several reasons for that. Of course, you know, people, people's habits and hobbies change and maybe they're not skiing as much as they used to be, but I don't think that's probably the case because population is rising, there's still lots of people wanting to ski. Um, 
but yeah, it's really mostly because those ski resorts aren't viable anymore. Like the snow isn't falling enough on the slopes, especially the lower down ones. And so they've been forced to close. So you've got all of these kind of ghost towns of these ski resorts, which are only really now useful for cyclists in the summer to go and cycle up to, um, which is the only time I've ever been to any ski resorts. But um, it's that was really staggering to, to read that. And climate change, I don't know, um, without getting into all the science of it, it's, you know, the, the temperature rise that we've had so far is around 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But as you go at higher altitude, the climate changes faster. So the, the, the as you go higher up than the, in the in the kind of Alps, it's more like two degrees already of warming's happened compared to what it would have been pre-industrially. So there's, there's it's kind of accelerating in these mountain regions, which is kind of why we're called the Glacier Trust. You know, the, the glaciers are, are melting in, in the Himalayas and and the temperature rise there is faster than it would be at sea level. Um, so not all of these ski resorts have closed and they're fighting against it. And their kind of adaptation to this lack of snow, which is their, which is their adaptation to climate change, is to get these great big um, snow-making machines, which I don't know if anybody's seen one of these things. They're like a kind of a fridge or a freezer where you pump water into it, you power it with a load of probably fossil fuel-powered electricity, to freeze the water and then spray it on the slopes to, to, to create this kind of illusion that there's still snow. And that's, that's you know, they've been doing this since the 1950s, but it's obviously becoming more and more prevalent as these ski resorts try, try to stay open. And um, I actually read as well that in Moscow, in, in Red Square at Christmas now, they're not getting the snow they used to get. And so they're actually pumping fake snow into, into Red Square to try and create this kind of winter wonderland illusion as well going on. And it's a kind of a form of denial in some sense as well, because it kind of, by... By creating this fake snow and creating these fake winter wonderlands, it's it's a way of sort of denying the impact that climate change is having. You know, if you, if you didn't get up early enough to see the snow machines, you think that snow was real. So it's it's crazy. And then then on top of that, the 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 craziest story I found about it was that in uh, Luchon Super Wagner, which is in in the French Alps, I might have got that pronunciation wrong. Apologies. Um, the town, the mayor there, in a particularly mild winter, sanctioned. The use of helicopters to fly up to higher altitude slopes to scoop up snow into these big sort of bus, big sort of nets, and then fly it down to the ski resorts and drop the snow on the ski resorts just to keep those ski resorts going, which obviously cost probably thousands of pounds. But it's like this is these are the kind of extremes of adaptation that people are going to, and obviously these adaptations aren't benign. They're causing, you know, they're burning fossil fuels to make these things happen, which so that, so they're kind of maladaptations is, is what they're known as. They exacerbate vulnerabilities elsewhere. So that was one of the stories which I came across as a kind of, and it's a fairly obvious one because, you know, people have heard of fake snow and, and snow machines and so on. So um, the next one to talk about is, is about wine, which was quite interesting as well. So obviously around the world, as, as the temperatures are changing and the, and the kind of the patterns of rainfall are changing, and this is obviously something which is very affects us in, in Nepal. Um, but for the wine-grown regions, obviously... Wine grapes, you know, they're very sort of sensitive to temperature changes. They're sensitive to frosts, to insect um, insect pests and things like this, and to extremes of heat. So what I found this paper by a guy called um, Ignacio Morales Castilla, and he'd calculated, or him and his team had calculated, that at two degrees of warming, which is, you know, probably the best case scenario that we can hope for at this point, 56% um, of the wine-growing regions won't be able to grow the wine that they're currently growing. 56%, just two degrees. And he predicts that at four degrees of warming, which is probably the upper end of, of where we might go, 85% um, of those wine-grown regions are going to be not viable, which is, you know, bad news for wine lovers. And so what they're doing, there's two sort of options for, for those wine growers. They can either, if they've got the money, they can sort of migrate their business. Sort of in, in Europe, it would be to migrate it north. So this is why we see... Um, champagne companies like Tattinger are buying tracts of land in the south of England because they can grow, well, they won't, be, they won't be able to call it champagne, but they'll be able to grow sparkling wine in the south of England. That's why the south of England is now becoming more and more of a wine-growing area. And so you can migrate your actual grape variety north if you're in Europe. But the other thing they're doing is they're considering ripping out their vines, their existing vines, and planting new ones. So if you're in Bordeaux and you, and you grow Cabernet Sauvignon, say, it might not be viable to grow that in the future because it'll be too dry, it'll be too hot, and that grape won't be able to survive. So they're actually looking to switch to other grapes. So switching to grapes which are currently growing sort of in the south of Portugal to bring those up. And obviously that is 
can you imagine the sort of that making that decision as, as a wine grower? I mean, you could do it, you could pilot it in a small part of your of your farm, but to rip them all out, all the cultural history to say, right, we're never going to grow Cabernet Sauvignon again in Bordeaux. You know, somebody living, you know, somebody in this room might buy the last ever bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon which is grown in Bordeaux. And that's that's a possibility, but they might buy the first one of what's currently a Portuguese wine might be the first one to grow in Bordeaux. So these are the kind of ways that people are adapting, and that's that's just with wine, but this is true across lots of agriculture. And so you see farmers switching from one crop to the other because it's more resistant to drought, or it can cope with flooding, or um, or it's it's um, it will kind of thrive at these at these higher temperatures. So these are but. With wine, you can't really do that because you've got to keep growing wine, so you have to look at these other sort of more extreme versions. Um, another example which which um, interested me, because I'm a football fan and I hope that Wales are going to get to the World Cup next year, um, which is going to be in Doha, in Qatar, which is obviously a very hot place, um, one of the hottest places in the world. And actually, even its latitude makes it very hot, but its, its unique geography as well, just the continentality and things around it, I mean, it's even hotter than it, other places at that same latitude. So... We're talking days, you know, 50 degrees Celsius type days can happen there. And so what they're doing in building those stadiums, and there's obviously, you know, the, the idea to have a World Cup in, in Qatar and all of the social justice issues around going into the building, putting all that aside, what they're doing there to kind of keep the fans cool is to basically install air conditioning in these outdoor stadiums. Underneath every seat in the stadium, there'll be a nice little fan to keep you cool while you're watching the football in all these stadiums, so they're building that, which is crazy. And obviously people will go from their air-conditioned hotel into their air-conditioned taxi or bus into their air-conditioned stadium and back again. So they'll kind of be kept at sort of 22 degrees and nice and happy, but, you know, completely sort of, I guess, detached from the reality of the heat that's going on there. And even in, in Doha as well, they're even air-conditioning the pavements in the kind of city areas so that people can be more comfortable going shopping and air conditioning in the sort of outdoor cafes. A bit like we have patio heaters here, really. It's the opposite of that. But um, it's crazy. And obviously, it's an oil-rich country, so it's going to be powering all of that by, by oil to keep that going. And, and, you know, that's going to be happening across the Middle East. But when you look at the European cities, North American cities, Australian cities, and sort of the wealthier you know, cities in, in Southeast Asia... If they're air conditioning pavements now in Doha, then you know we can expect it to start happening in other cities as well. If you know if we're not scrutinising this stuff and not actually calling people out on it, so that was a real shocking one. And then to finish on a more positive one, um, in Morocco, I found this project um, where they they're capturing fog. So it's in in the Atlas Mountains in the south of Morocco, um, just sort of on the northern edge of the of the Sahara Desert. Um, where there's, you know, the water table is dropping and they're not getting as much rainfall as they previously got. And so to combat this, um, they've, they're putting up these kind of big mesh nets, which are kind of like this, really, um, but obviously mesh and sort of metal metal nets. And during the sort of morning, the, 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 the dew comes sort of up the hill, floats gradually up the hill, collects on that, on, on the mesh, forms into droplets and then goes down into guttering. And then they use that water then for drinking and for irrigation, which means that those villages don't you know they can continue to exist and they don't have to be sort of abandoned which is which is what has been happening and that's that's one example of a project which an adaptation which is kind of quite low tech um which is really important because when you have these kind of t projects which are too high tech then these bits of technology tend to break and then they don't get fixed and, and then you know it's a big waste of time and money um but they're working and it's actually works in tandem with another kind of adaptation strategy, which is which is migration. Migration is often sort of thought of as being sort of a bad thing, and like people being forced to migrate. But humans have always migrated and always been quite nomadic. We're we're quite unusual for not doing it really um, here in the West. And so, um, what it allows people to do in those those sorts of villages is to migrate in one part of the year to maybe go and work in the city, but to be able to come back and work on the land when it's viable and there is enough water. And so it keeps those communities alive and there's that kind of circular migration that goes on, which is quite seasonal. Um, these sorts of adaptations that keep the kind of the home village kind of going as a way to enable those migrations and they can work in tandem with those migrations, which is quite positive. And it's something we're seeing in, in Nepal as well. There's, um, you know, the, there are places in Nepal which are really high up, sort of 5,000 metres, and you can't live there in the winters, it's too cold, but you can 
go there in the summer and then you can come down to a lower altitude in, in, in the winter months and stay warm. And those seasonal migrations, they've been going on for years and years. But, and so um, you can always kind of work out ways to sort of mix the adaptation strategies together. Um, now, these stories of adaptation, like I said, they're not massively well heard and we don't sort of, I've written some more in the book, but there's, and there's more in the climate adaptation book, which are really worth and interesting to look at, but these aren't being heard and, and it's, you know, there's the main reason that I can understand for this is that in the, you know, the people who have the power to control the stories we hear through the media, they don't tend to talk much about um, people who are the kind of the most vulnerable, the kind of the voiceless people in the areas that have been marginalised where um, how climate change is impacting. You know, we're not hearing those stories enough. Now, we know that COP26, there was some controversy over whether it should go ahead even now, whether it should have been postponed longer because it's been so difficult for people from the global south to come to Glasgow because, you know, they've been denied the vaccine through, you know, all of the all of the politics around the kind of the use of vaccines and who can who can have them. Um, so there's been, you know, there's, there's stories, we're not hearing those voices from the Global South enough. And the people in the Global South are sort of, you know, obviously they're talking about the pressing, the massive need to mitigate climate change and to prevent it because they're feeling the impacts of it right now. And they know that, you know, even at one degree of warming, which we've had now, the, the impacts are horrific. And, you know, they know that at two degrees, it's going to be just, you know, very, very, very difficult. And so their voices aren't being heard on mitigation and the need for it enough and not, they're not pressing the urgency for the, for the agreements that we need and the commitments we need from the global north to actually tackle climate change and limit the amount of climate change that's happening. We're also not hearing their stories about their need for adaptation and, what, and their, their need for money to compensate them for the loss and damage that's been caused by climate change, which is not their fault. And so these voices, we, we hear them a bit, you know, during the COPs, we hear some great speeches. Um, we've got um, the Prime Minister of um, Barbados gave a brilliant speech, I think she's called Mia Motley, which was amazing to hear. Um, Andrew Marr had, had the um, climate envoy from the Marshall Islands on, um, Tina Stege, a couple, about a week and a half ago, and she was t talking about, you know, the Marshall Islands might not exist if we don't, if we don't limit climate change, but also, you know, can we have some money to, to adapt to the sea level rise and help us build up our land or put houses on stilts and things like this to help to cope? And so we hear some of these stories during the COPs, but we don't hear them between, hardly at all. Like they, those voices don't come up. It's only like during these, this kind of big event, and it's normally we get one big COP every five years. So it's really only, for most people, they only really hear these voices once every five years. So it's no wonder that we're not hearing about adaptation. And one of the, one of the consequences of that is that there's hardly any money going into it. So one of the big debating points at COP26 is um, the $100 billion, which was promised... Um, by global north countries to global south countries or developed world to developing world or rich to whatever, however you want to phrase it. Um, there was a promise made in 2009 that by 2020, $100 billion would be made available for, in climate finance, which is, which is a combination of funding and grants. Some of it is, but some of it is loans as well, so that people have to pay it back. Um, but there was a promise of $100 billion, which which would be, come on stream by 2020. And what we saw in 2020, um, and remember that these budgets were probably set before the pandemic hit, was that only 80 billion came to fruition. So only 80 billion was coming in. And of, of that 100 billion, it's meant to be split 50-50 between adaptation and mitigation. And what we saw was 80% of it going to mitigation projects. And so only 20% of it was left for adaptation. And of that 20%, the amount which was going to the really marginalised vulnerable communities was right down to 1.6 billion is the estimate. So 1.6 billion out of what should have been 100 billion going to the people who have been the most impacted by climate change and done the least to cause it. So places like where we work in Nepal, so hardly any money's coming to it, which is, which is terrible. And they've done, just before this, this COP, there was some, I don't know, there was a meeting of developing countries and I think it was Germany and I can't remember the other, I think it might have been Canada, kind of got around the table and said, right, by, we'll definitely do it by 2023. That was the best they could come up with. So that's three years late, and we're not going to get 100 billion this time. We won't get it again. And you know, 100 billion, we can talk. It's kind of an abstract term, but just to put it in perspective, um, 600 billion is spent on advertising every year around the world. So we spend six times as much on advertising as we do on climate. And fossil fuel subsidies, 
four trillion dollars get spent on fossil fuel subsidies. So the money, the money exists, but it's just not getting to where it needs to go. Um, so UNEP, um, the United Nations Environment Programme, they do a report every year called the Adaptation Gap Report, um, which looks at kind of how many countries have got adaptation projects and plans in place. So the UK has an adaptation plan in place. Most countries around the world have them, but not everyone. So they look at what's going on there, and they look at the gap between the amount of money that's needed to fund the adaptation projects that need to happen compared to how much has been provided. And their estimate at the moment is that it's between five and ten times more money is needed than is actually being provided. And they also estimate that by 2030, that just for adaptation projects, we're going to need something like 300 billion US dollars. And currently we're getting, what, 1.6 billion. So it's a long way to go. There's a huge gap in what's happening. The Glacier Trust is plugging it a little bit. And anybody wants to make a donation, very, very welcome to have them. Um, but we're very, very small fry in all, in all this. Um, but it's, for me, it comes down to, you know, when politicians won't provide that money and that, those funds won't come to fruition if climate campaigners, if social justice campaigners aren't demanding, aren't saying, where's the money for adaptation? We need it. And that's, that's why we need to get adaptation up the agenda, which is kind of, you know, why we're do, doing this great adaptations project. Um, so, yeah, the first two parts of the book sort of look at these different adaptation case studies and hopefully get people interested in it enough so that they go, well, I've read this thing in the book and you should hear about what's going on in the ski resorts. It's crazy. That's kind of what I want to happen as a result of this so that we can get this conversation going a bit further. So um, if you get a chance to do that, please do. And, and I've got a geography teacher here. You can, you can do some of that. Um, so part three of the book, though, is a bit of a gear change. It's, it, was, it was hard to resist not sort of looking at the bigger picture. Um, I was just going to do the, these case studies, but then you just think, well, if I'm going to sit here and write a book for, for a year and it's locked down, I haven't got anything else to do. I may as well put the world to rights a little bit. So the third part of the book is really looking at this, this question of, you know, we're, we have this kind of reassuring story that everything's under control and they're going to keep temperatures below one, two degrees and, you know, we'll be able to adapt to that and it'll be all right generally. Like there's, there's kind of that soothsaying going on and you can see it all the time in the media right now. Um, but it's really complacent to think that's what's actually going to happen. So even the UN itself is predicting 2.7 degrees of warming if all the pledges are met. That's if they're met, which they probably won't be because they haven't been very good at keeping their promises so far. So if they're all met and if the kind of assumptions within them are correct. So lots of these kind of assumptions to, kept, to keep the temperatures below 1.5 or below 2 degrees rely on these futuristic technologies of carbon capture and storage, and this development of renewable energy and that we're going to be able to scale renewable energy around the world. Those technologies, you know, the carbon capture and storage, they've been going on about it for 10 years and they still, there's only one commercially viable one in the world and we probably need 15,000 of them to be able to, that's what's in the pledges to help that happen. So, so the 2.7 degrees is kind of what will happen if the pledges are kept to, but if we're being realistic, it could, you know, we could go over three degrees, over four degrees of warming. So that changes things dramatically in terms of what's going to happen. Like we can see at the moment, um, you know, if you really want to depress yourself, have a look at what's happening in Madagascar at the moment, with five years of drought caused by climate change, and you know people really, really struggling to survive. So that's just the beginnings of it. So we're going to see more storms, more fires, more flooding, more sort of heat bombs, and the sort of thing we saw in Canada over the summer. All these extremes are going to be build up more and more, and we can't adapt to all of this stuff. Like it's going to be impossible. To, we can adapt up to a up to an extent using some of these strategies which I was describing, but this bigger stuff, you know, it's going to cause huge systemic damage. So one of the quotes I'm using a lot at the moment is a Naomi Klein one, um, where she's talking about there being no non-radical futures ahead of us. Either we're going to change or we're going to be changed. I think she's dead right about that so and obviously the best thing to do is to change you know get ahead of it don't don't wait for things to collapse before we actually start changing things so um but actually ended up in a fairly kind of more optimistic space after sort of thinking this through and writing up on it um you know climate change is a, is a sign it's just one of the signs that the sort of western so-called civilization that we live in is you know in trouble as you know the calamities we see that climate change is causing there's other calamities as well you know there's there's the huge amount of inequality in the world you know, be, de defenders of the status quo will sort of talk about 
extreme poverty being, you know, only 10% of the world are in extreme poverty and that percentage is dropping. And they'll, they'll say, you know, $1.9 per day is, is extreme poverty. So if you're on 1.92, then you're not in extreme poverty. Um, but they, they, they sort of champion that and that's, that's gradually dropping. But what they never, they never really talk to you about is that 46% of the population are living on just $5.50 a day. And that's, that's, that's $5.50 of what you could buy in America for $5.50 as well. So imagine what you can buy for, for about £4.50 £4. here. People are, there's half of the world are living on that much money per day. And the real kicker one for me, which I've never heard before and found while I was looking at this, was that 85% of the world's population are living on $30 a day. It's crazy. So how can we, you know, it's hard to sort of think that Western civilization and globalization and all of the way the world is run at the moment is, is kind of working well, if that's the case, if 85% of the world are living on $30 a day. It's... Um, it's crazy. So, you know, for all of its benefits and, and its wonders, um, we're the lucky ones who live within Western civilization and feel the benefits of it. But the reality of it is that most people in the world just live uncomfortably with it. You know, they're having to deal with it and its consequences. Climate change impacts being sort of the most tangible, obvious one, but, you know, the, the wars that we're seeing, you know, things like, even things like Brexit, they just come out of the blue and just shock us all and create, create all this in these kind of they're kind of all signs that the, that the the system we're living in is not that stable and and we end up with you know politicians playing this kind of game of whack-a-mole where they're just trying to cope with these things you know the pandemic is another one it's like how can we sort of keep this sense of normality we can just try and throw money at things and control it and that, or we'll, we'll go and you know we'll go and bomb afghanistan for a few years and oh well, that didn't work and they you know this is this is what's going on but these kind of moles that are popping up and kind of piercing this kind of normality you know, they're just getting bigger, there's more of them, and they're getting angrier. That's kind of what's happening, and it's, it's hard to control all of these things. And so we're seeing sort of parts of the world where the sort of civilization is starting to sort of fray at the edges and things are collapsing, so you think of the war zones. But that, for me, is where the hope ends up being, because um, probably the most inspiring story that I've come across in the last five years has been um, in Kurdistan, in, in northern Syria, so in, in the area of of northern Syria called Rahava, which is kind of the southern part of Kurdistan. And Kurdistan kind of is a is a state with without any, without an actual actually being a state. It covers um, parts of Turkey, Syria, and, and Iraq. Um, but in Rahava, as the Syrian civil war kicked off, and obviously the government sort of retreated from there, and they were battling with ISIS, and they ended up the the Rahavans ended up sort of um, forming their own sort of guerrilla armies to fight against ISIS and to try and maintain their land, but they also weren't being controlled then by the Syrian central government. So instead of being a kind of monoculture of olive trees, which is what it was before, with lots of oppressed people working on that land, when the when the kind of the vacuum appeared, when the government retreated and they were able to defend their land, they started to apply I mean it's called they called it it's kind of eco anarchist feminist policies, which sounds a bit scary. Uh, but the anarchist side of it isn't sort of Anarchism kind of gets a bad name in that sense, and anarchism is quite um, is about really self-governance and self-control. And so they ended up setting up kind of citizens' assemblies, the sort of thing the Extinction Rebellion talk about, to actually make decisions at the local level. And they brought made sure there was great gender equality in all the institutions they were setting up. And but they had really strong ecological principles as well. So now it's kind of a thriving environment of lots of different types of agriculture going on, organic principles. Um, and they have this you know, resolve as a community to be um, to have this sort of spread out democracy where, where the decisions are made by people in rooms like this having a conversation what should we do about education what should we do about health and coming to a decision and the politicians aren't able to then go and express their views they just have to represent the view of the people and so that's how they're running it and it's, it's still hugely fragile because Syria is, is still a very fragile position at the moment but even despite the pressures that it has, being attacked by Turkey, being attacked by ISIS, the Americans coming out of there and not def helping them to defend their land, it's still going and they're still able to do it, even under all of that duress. So that's, that's a really exciting movement. There's a great short book called um, Make Rahava Green Again, which, which I reference in the book and it's definitely worth reading. And so that's a kind of example of, you know, and they're adapting to climate change as well within all this because obviously climate change is another factor in what's happening there. 
And so this is an example of how adaptation is part of a broader transformative process. So they're actually adapting to climate change while also changing the fabric and changing the economic model, changing the societal model, and actually getting to a stronger place. And it's and it was from leaving that would help make sense of what's happening in Nepal as well. So Nepal has gone through a process of gradually decentralising from central government. It's, it's, it's now as a federal system, and more power is now in in the kind of in the regions. And so the the, the mayors of each region have more power. And what we're seeing in the project areas in Solakumbu, especially where we have our biggest project, and where we have the an agroforestry resource centre, is that the success of that agroforestry resource centre has been noticed by the mayor. And because he has access to budget and because he's close to his community and, and is able to sort of talk to people about where, where, could we, where could we replicate this? Can we replicate it in the next valley in the next valley? And that's what's starting to happen. So there's that kind of decentralisation is starting to happen there. And with our projects, just to finish on this, um, you know, Nepal is facing huge, huge challenges from climate change. It's, the monsoon season is becoming really erratic. They don't know when it's going to start, when it's going to finish. The rain doesn't come in kind of steady intervals or at steady rates. It's now kind of drought or deluge is what they get. And so they have sort of flash flooding and runoff and soil erosion and all these things are happening because of that. Or, you know, it will kind of have a false start and people will start planting their crops and then it'll be dry again for three weeks and all those, all those will die. And so there's all these adaptations that need to happen. Um, they're also suffering, you know, these um, insect pests are kind of moving into new areas. And so they're needing to adapt to that. And one of the things we've seen happen is that um, these, you know, these insect pests, which are completely new to these regions, are coming in and attacking the, the vegetables and sort of ground crops and the fruit trees and things. And farmers are turning like automatically kind of in a kind of default way to sort of chemical pesticides to try and deal with it. And, you know, being quite successful, but obviously the chemical pesticides have, have knock on effects and actually, you know, even, you know, going through people's skin and, and into them and causing cancers and things as well as the effect on the biodiversity more generally. And so some of the work we're doing is to um, enable them to, to take on sort of more organic um, ways of controlling pests, so creating biopesticides and biofertilizers instead of using the chemicals, working out what, what plants to plant next to other plants, because some plants will scare um, insects off, um, working out that, you know, for if you're planting coffee, then you need to give it shade because the insects then won't have a nice warm place to sort of burrow in and and destroy the plant. So all these things are the sorts of things people are learning at these agroforestry centres, and it's helping them to adapt to climate change. But they're not doing it, it's not happening in a silo. So part of also what they're doing is through things like growing coffee, um, they're able to gradually commercialise and move away from subsistence farming, which means they're starting to get an income, which means it's taxable, which means they can have money to spend on schools and hospitals and health centres and roads and, and to improve the fabric of the, of the society. So it's transforming society and they've got you know really strong gender equality principles there they sort of if they're setting up a cooperative similar to the ones we which have been described in that first presentation you know they're making sure that there's a there's gender balance there and, and decision making is equal and so it's part of this broader process to actually transform society and you know they're also very aware of you know not having an impact on climate change so they're really trying not to use fossil fuels as well in the way that they're developing and trying to use solar energy and Hydro, like micro hydro power and things like this so it's really encouraging to see um, those sorts of things happening because it kind of it's a glimpse into you know what might happen if either we choose to change or are changed that you know there are different ways of living and you know, the people you live you meet there they're you know they're intelligent some of the some of the things they come up with in the agriculture just astound me like the way that they plant the trees they have this amazing biointensive process of digging a hole a metre deep and a metre wide and having all these different layers of matter in it to make sure the tree has the best chance of surviving. And it's really quite scientific the way they're doing it. And this is, you know, through their knowledge that they've developed over time. And so it's, you know, that ends up giving me some hope that there's, you know, even if there are these collapses do happen, that there are kind of glimpses, there are these visions of different and better kind of futures coming up, which is, I think is the main reason we're finding it hard to move beyond the systems we have now is that we don't have these visions of different and better kinds of futures they're not they're not out there they're not they're not being sort of taught to us so it's kind of yeah things are a bit uncomfortable and don't feel quite right but we can't imagine anything different but these these sorts of stories can help us to imagine these different different futures that they're all possible okay so sorry i get on get get going on this stuff and i'll just stop i will i think we um 
I've probably talked for long enough. So I, I'd um, yeah, I'd just like to sort of wrap up by saying yeah, the, the sort of the three key things are to remember that you know climate change is adaptation is catastrophically underfunded. There's nowhere near enough money for it yet. Um, we need to shine a spotlight on adaptation stories, A, because people are doing it in kind of self-interested ways which have this collateral damage elsewhere, so we need to scrutinise it. But then we also need to learn these stories of these great adaptations that are happening so that those stories can spread so that the farmers in Morocco can teach the farmers in Peru about capturing fog. You know, these stories need to, need to spread around the world and quickly, which is why we need to tell these stories. And, yeah, the, and the third takeaway being... Think about your own adaptation strategies for yourself and your organisations and, and places in your town. You know, check out, has Bristol got an adaptation strategy? Because it's going to need one. And so, so look, at, look at those things. Um, so, yeah, I will end there. Is, does anybody have any challenges or questions or comments they'd like to raise at this point? Was everyone just one another beer? Jamie? Yeah, could you um, just explain a bit more about agroforestry? Because I think... Like a lot of projects are mm. based around that, but I don't think people really know what it is. Yeah. So agroforestry is effectively it's kind of the shorthand for it would be that it's the farming of trees. So it's so it's farming sort of fruit trees, um, nut trees, um, trees for timber, um, but also things like coffee as well. So what we kind of work with the partners in Nepal to do is to um, is to promote a layer farming strategy of, of farming, which means that you grow root vegetables at the bottom, they grow a coffee bush, and then they grow like a banana tree over the top to shade the coffee, so they're getting a lot of um, lot of crop from, from one small area. So yeah, so agroforestry, it's quite similar to agroecology as well. It's 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 kind of, yeah, the farming of trees. And, and it, one of the reasons it's been quite successful as well in Nepal is that there's a lot of the kind of traditional male workforce is emigrating abroad, even behind kind of elderly people, young people, who don't have the kind of strength to do the really hard grind of of farming millet and rice and the sort of really labor intensive ones and actually these trees are a little bit easier to to farm as well so it's another reason why it's it's working but um yeah i hope that explains it a little bit does anybody else have any questions just uh why is it that adaptation hasn't that you know the concept hasn't on. You, you've touched on it. Maybe a better question is, what's the number one reason that you, you think is why it hasn't caught on? Um, I'll give you two. Because right, yeah, <laughs> I think this, I'm not really sure. I think, I think one reason historically has been that adaptation is seen is like, has the connotation of giving up on mitigation, on giving up on stopping climate change. So yeah. people worry that if we talk about all these great adaptation strategies yeah. and that will be possible to adapt to climate change, so don't worry about it. And people still do talk about this. People like Julia Hartley Brewer will talk about this. Oh, it's fine, climate change, we can adapt to it, it's no problem. So there's that resistance from the, within the climate movement to say, we'll take our eye off the ball. Yeah. And I think the other reason is that up until now, the kind of the wealthy world, the, you know, that control the narratives and the stories that we hear haven't had to start adapting to climate change in any meaningful way yet. And I think now when you see things like Canada, so one of the things which happened in Canada, which also happened in France, is that when you have these huge heat, heat sort of heat waves that come in, um, they're actually turning over some of the municipal buildings into cool rooms. Yeah. And so they like create, basically, they get one of the town hall rooms, which hopefully already has thick walls and is quite cool anyway. And they just have them as spaces for people who don't have their own air conditioning to come and gather and to kind of have a shared, shared kind of source of cool. It's a bit like how people used to go to the pub to go to sit around the fire to stay warm. So you could have 10 people sat around one air conditioning unit using that much energy, or you can have 10 people at home using 10 air conditioning units. So those sorts of things. And I think it's because, yeah, I think now, yeah, we're waking up to the fact that we're going to have to adapt to climate change in some way or another. And, and so it's starting to starting to get up the agenda, but that's that's pretty recent phenomenon, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that it's absolutely critical. Hmm. So the, the best way to move forward in this, all of the issues that are coming up, uh, is that notion of adapting. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like a good thing. I mean, I can sit here, and the work I do, I can actually reframe it completely using that kind of structure, and it makes more sense. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, yeah, I, 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 the thing I can do is to go back and reframe it all onto that, that kind of heading. <clears throat> Great. Sounds good. Um, is, that, is that sort of one of the problems that it's already happening across the board that people just aren't putting a name on it? Yeah, maybe. I think it's. Happy. I think we do it without even thinking about it half the time. Like it's um, it's kind of on a really hot day. I've just had. We've got a six-month-old baby, and our flat in London is terribly insulated. So right now in the winter, drafts coming in, crank up the heating, you know. But in the summer, with the more intense heat waves we're having, which you know, I've lived in that flat for ten years, and it's only the last few years that they've become quite unbearable. You know, we you know for the survival of our child, we went out and bought a fan. And it was like going against everything I believe in. It's like, I don't want to buy this plastic fan, which is going to okay, keep us cool and keep our baby alive. But I know it's having like fossil fuel impact. But of course, I'm going to look after my baby. And that's what people are doing. So we're having these sort of mini maladaptations going on all over the place. And even like buying like a little handheld fan. That's an adaptation to climate change. Even like, there's a great story um, in The Guardian, and I've written it up a little bit in the book, of, of a lady in uh, Paris. She's kind of a gonzo journalist type person. She goes out and basically sort of puts all of Paris's kind of adaptation strategies to the test during a heat wave. She talks about, you know, dashing into a into the lobby of a hotel to get to get cool or going into a into a into a um corner shop and getting a can of coke and sticking it on her face to cool her down and all these sorts all these sorts of things is what, what we're doing or like you know, taking a dog for a walk early in the morning before the pavement gets too hot for its paws. All this sort of stuff. These are all adaptations. They're they're really minor, tiny ones but there's lots of them going on. I'm sure you can probably think of ones which you've done, which you maybe wouldn't have done 20 years ago, things you're doing now, which you wouldn't have done 20 years ago, especially if you work in the outdoors. Um, London, actually, you said previously that there's places that we want to do the kind of cool spaces. Mm. We can do that as well. Yeah. So, just in a while. <laughs> maybe I should get down there. Yeah. <laughs> if you Google, like, London cool spaces, Yeah. So I work in climate adaptation, and I think one of the biggest headaches for me is the funding of it at the moment. And I think this is UK specific, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there was a stat that said 86% of climate adaptation funding is publicly funded at mm -hmm. the moment. How on earth do we get, like most of the money is in like, private organisations and private companies, and I guess. I don't know the answer to this at all, but how on earth do we get access to that money? How can we incentivise companies to kind of put funding into adaptation? That's my current... Yeah, it's very, it is very difficult. I think that's one of the big problems why the finance doesn't flow into it, the, the lending doesn't flow into it, because people say, well, how are we going to make money out of this? But I think in agricultural sense, there is huge sense in someone like Tesco's going to their looking at their supply chain thinking will this farm survive do we need to invest do, do we need to help them adapt to make sure the food can keep coming in so do we need to help them get polytunnels do we need to help them with their irrigation so that our profits can continue in the future i think that's probably already starting to happen i'd imagine and, and i know that some some supermarkets are kind of moving some of their um storage units to cooler places because it's harder to keep them refrigerated in the summer if in the south of england compared to in the north of England and some of those sorts of things are starting to happen. So yeah, it is it is really it is a really difficult one to get around. But I think this is where we have to kind of this is why we have to not think about it in a silo and adaptation being part of a broader transformative process. And it's one of the factors that comes into it. But you know, businesses are adapting and they're doing it kind of on the quiet and they're not being scrutinised and they're not necessarily doing it in ways which we would approve of if we if we saw what they were doing because they're cutting corners on social justice, cutting corners on environmental issues because we haven't got any environmental groups challenging them and saying, can you just make your adaptation a bit greener? It doesn't have to be fossil fuel powered air conditioning. There are other ways of keeping your your kind of workers cool, have, you design your building better, get get more shade so that people in the off, in their offices don't need to crank up the air conditioning straight away. Do you remember the building we used to work in? And my ex-colleague here, Tim, um, we used to work in this building in in Shoreditch and it was awful wasn't it within the summer it was absolutely baking hot and we try and crank up the air conditioners in the winter it was freezing cold so you know those adaptations need to happen um, I think that building has been locked down or it's going to be probably needs to be <laughs> do we do we are we 
is it is it a better narrative to actually bring mitigation and adaptation together more and stop seeing them as two separate processes mm. and, and much more about all adaptations should have a mitigating effect? Yeah, I think so, definitely. And I think this is where the kind of ecosystem-based adaptation and the nature-based solutions to adaptation are really sort of working well because, yeah, with you know, with the agricultural projects, you know, with the agroforestry, we're planting trees which obviously absorb carbon dioxide and help to mitigate climate change in a way that just having big rice fields doesn't. So, yeah, trying to, you're right. I mean, it's they are two sides of the same coin, and they have and they can it can be done in, and it needs to be done in to be doing at the very least your adaptation should be climate neutral but if it can be climate positive then and that's what we want to see and i think you know a lot of this is you know it goes back to that wider transformative process of you know getting back to nature a bit more and, and being more connected in, in that sense so yeah i think there's going to be drinks in the beer reporting was that right is that how far away is that oh, it's pretty good so if um yeah if anybody wants to come for a drink afterwards um, to sample some more um, great adaptations of beer. I haven't actually really spoken about that, so I'll just very briefly say about that. The One of the main reasons why we wanted to do this, obviously, Wiper and True has great sort of long connections with the Glacier Trust. Um, and we chatted with Michael and I about sort of doing a beer together and and the coffee we grow in, in Nepal is, is an adaptation strategy in itself, but it helps the farmers to commercialise helps them to have a kind of high value crop and they're also growing things like hazelnuts and macadamias and almonds as well um, and what we wanted to do with this is to show that um, at the moment in the coffee chain and the coffee supply chain what happens is the coffee gets grown by the farmer and it gets processed up to a point up to the kind of point where it's like a green bean and then they, then they dry it out and it becomes parchment and that parchment can be stored for a long time which means it can be shipped overseas so what, what tends to happen at the moment is that coffee gets shipped overseas and then roasted in, in the UK, say. And when you roast the coffee, that's when you really make the money out of it because you, you turn it into like, you know, a coffee bean, which is worth a lot, a lot more money than it's kind of it's basically a seed. And so what happens is the kind of default way at the moment in the world is that coffee gets um, grown in the global south and then exported and it's kind of as a kind of a raw material. So it's kind of have their assets sort of stripped from them, which is the story of, you know, it's not just coffee that happens to all the minerals and everything else that, that happens to. And then the value gets added to it in, in the Western world, which is why basically money flows from the global south to the global north relentlessly. And so, you know, the global south is developing the global north rather than the other way around. That's, that's really what's going on. And so what we wanted to show is that with this is that we, we with this coffee that's grown in, in the poor on our project areas, it's having the adaptive benefit, it's helping the farmers to have an income, but we also roast it, make sure it gets roasted in Nepal as well. So Wiper and True bought the coffee once it'd been roasted in Nepal, so the value of the coffee being added and stays then in Nepal, which helps the Nepalese economy to grow. So we've been um, working with some roasteries in Kathmandu in the capital of Nepal to see how we can get that coffee to be roasted in country and then exported so that much more of the money stays in, in Nepal. And the argument against this is always, when I go into coffee shops and say, do you want to buy our coffee from, from Nepal? They go, oh no, we like to freshly roast it with our artisanal roastery down the road because our customers want it to be freshly roasted, um, which you know is, is the marketing spiel and it's been very effective. But if that was true, then why is the best before date on all coffee sort of six months into the future? It's still good coffee, like a couple of weeks after it's been roasted. And it's very easy to get coffee transported from the south to the north. And so this is this is a great sort of, example and it has cardamom in it as well from our project areas and so it's a way in which we can do that and Wiper and True have been hugely um, generous and supportive and all of the profit that they make from this beer is going to be donated to the Glacier Trust and we're going to take it directly to the farmers and give it to the farmers cooperative as cash and say look you guys earn this, earn this money. And hopefully we can t take some of the beer over for them to try as well I think they'll be amazed by it. Um, so yeah so do do um, do Yes, try some more and then it's available for sale on the Wiper and True website, I think in six packs and 12 packs and more if you want it. Um, and I think it's for sale in a few pubs around Bristol as well, I'd imagine. Yep. Good. So you can buy it, you can buy it off the keg as well. Um, so please please do that. And if you'd like to support the Glacier Trust um, and the newsletter, there's some information there about it. If you want to make a donation right now, you can text um, GREAT to 70085. 
and that will be five pound donation, just a one-off donation. You'll probably get a prompt to say, can you give us some more afterwards, but that's just how it works. Um, so yeah, that's great to 70085. Um, you can do that or you can go onto our website and donate through that. We'd be hugely appreciated because it's, it's challenging times for all charities at the moment to raise funds for what we need to do. And um, you know, we need to raise the money to keep these projects going and to keep developing these um, agroforestry work over there. Anyway, I will finish up there. Thanks so much for coming. So there we are, that was me talking in Bristol back in November 21. Um, I'd like to say a huge thanks to um, Emily and Ellie from Arcbound Foundation who did all the organising to put that event together and thanks to Waterstones for hosting it and thanks obviously to Wiper and True for coming down with the great adaptations Stout which um, which went down very well um, and depending on when you listen to this may still be available for sale um, from the Wiper and True website you can find out more at theglaciertrust.org forward slash beer um, I want to tell you about the next episode episode 4 which will feature Dr Lisa Shipper from the University of Oxford um, Lisa is one of the leading voices really on, on adaptation, certainly one of the leading ac- academics she's been in the field for over 20 years. Um, she's one of the contributing lead authors to the IPCC Working Group 2 report, which will be coming out in early 2022. And her specialism really is on how adaptation intersects with development. And she's been writing lots of interesting stuff recently about maladaptation and the causes of it and the pitfalls of it. So it was... Um, Great to talk to her. Um, recorded that interview um, just before Christmas, and um, that episode will be coming out very soon. So um, do stay tuned for that. So, lastly, as ever, thank you to everyone at the Glacier Trust and all our partner organisations for the work you do to enable climate change adaptation in Nepal and for your support for this project. I want to thank um, Hannah Ahmed and Susie Harrison for the artwork on the Great Adaptations Project, to Amity for allowing us to use their track um, on this podcast. Um, thanks again to Arcbound for the work you've done to publish um, Great Adaptations and to Ellie Donovan for her support in promoting it. Finally, as ever, thank you to you for listening, um, for downloading, um, for sharing please also rate and review on your podcast app um, to help us reach more people um, and to get them talking and thinking about climate change adaptation as well. So until next time, uh, thanks for listening to The Great Adaptations Podcast.